Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm your host, Carol Meng. Post-war Hong Kong experienced some of the fastest economic growth in the developing world. Yet, what often goes unnoticed is the remarkable productivity during this phase, second only to Japan. Today, Dr. Makeup Kelleher from Southern Methodist University will examine the period of Hong Kong's industrial diversification in the 1970s and 80s, as he provides insight into the evolution and efficiency of manufacturing during this time. He was invited by the University of Hong Kong to give a talk on Hong Kong industry and the Taiwan developmental state, the case of Bayer Aluminum, 1970 to 1990. Particularly here, I want to start with the question of productivity. In the 1950s, Hong Kong is mainly the, the majority of Hong Kong industrial production is in, is in textiles. Once into the 1960s, that industrialists and various officials began to recognize for various problems that again we can get into in the Q and A、um, that that Hong Kong needed transition out of this. That low cost labor was not the was not the way forward. The Hong Kong industry had to develop in Hong Kong. Had to develop greater、uh, productive capacities. So in in 1963, that the governor formed this、uh, committee on this working committee on productivity. In 64, they put out a put out a report where they、uh, the, the secretary, the lead guy of this committee, made this distinction between production and productivity.、It、says production, yeah, you can produce more just by working working harder, but that's not what we want to do. We want to increase increase productivity, which means Using more efficiently and more effectively both both human and material resources, upgrading skills as well as upgrading the capacities、uh, in order to、uh, produce more、uh, more outputs with less inputs. In '67, they officially established this this productivity council and it began putting out、uh, annual annual reports. In '72, again, it's addressing this problem of Hong Kong's industrial future. And the need in order to create, in order to raise productivity, and here they're effectively saying that we need to, in order for the economy to grow, in order to make this transition in Hong Kong industry, that we need to figure out ways to do more with 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 less.、Uh, we need to figure out how to become more efficient to produce more outputs with、uh, with less inputs, and that was sort of the、uh, the aims of this productivity council in aiding. Uh, Hong Kong firms to increase their increase their productivity.、And、part of this was this diversification away from labor-intensive industries such as 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 textiles. So initially, majority of its、uh, of its industry and and exports is in textiles.、Uh, as it begins to diversify, that there's four key industries that it begins moving into. So at the top、uh, is is clothing and, and garments. So Rather than just producing textiles and shipping them somewhere else to be able to turn it into end products, Hong Kong begins doing this、uh, it, it, itself. Electronics is another area. Really, it's electronics and,、uh, and and textiles, which which remain two of the key industries for Hong Kong's、uh, for, for for Hong Kong exports. Closely behind these, though, are, are plastics.、Um, it's kind of a morbid picture of these. Plastic doll heads, right? Plastic flowers is another one. I couldn't find a good picture of plastic flowers, and so you get the doll heads.、Um, and、uh, metal manufacturing, and this is everything from the production of metals such as aluminum, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later, that you can then mold into other things, as well as the end product of what is molded: cutlery, knives and forks and things, becomes a, a, 
a big thing in Hong Kong production as well in this diversification. So as Hong Kong firms begin to attempt to increase their productivity, they're diversifying in, in different industries, that they're not able to do this out of thin air. As much as officials and CEOs like to talk about Hong Kong pulling itself by its bootstraps that it made, that, that, that Hong Kong people made themselves, uh, that's not what actually happened. Uh, in order to complete these transitions, that they needed better production capacity. They needed greater technology. And the question was, where are they going to get that from? How are they going to train people in using this technology and increase and creating greater efficiency in, in, in their factories? So what I found uh, in the Hong Kong archive are hundreds of letters from Hong Kong firms to Taiwan requesting things, requesting Taiwan supply them with both machinery and know-how in order to diversify in other areas and increase their production capacity. I've categorized these requests into in, in, into four types. So the first is, is metal fabrication, which I'm going to talk about more later. Um, and this included rolling mills as well as rolling mills in order to create uh, plates, sort of the raw materials needed in, to mold into to other things, as well as ways in order to cut and, and shape various metals. So these, these large machines, like you see in, in such a picture. The second category is food production, especially sugar and, and sugar mills. Um, they're ordering sugar mills for the production of turning the cane into uh, granulated white sugar. Uh, but there are also requests for, uh, for, for canning, both the, the makotea, the, the tin plate needed for the, for the canning, as well as machines in order to make the can and to put the food into the, into the can. The third category of requests is in, in construction. Uh, and these are things like welding machines as well as cement, uh, cement machines in the construction boom, which begins happening, uh, which is happening throughout the seventies and eighties. And the fourth category is in shipbuilding. Uh, now this includes both the hull, although a little less so because there were a number of Hong Kong companies that were doing the hulls. Um, but more so the engines and parts for the engines, especially propellers uh, that Hong Kong companies, Hong Kong firms were turning to Taiwan in order to supply with. Now, the thing to emphasize is that in all these in all these requests, it's largely for the for uh, for the machinery uh, and for the a, a more advanced technology than what Hong Kong uh, uh, what Hong Kong firms had access to or what what was being able to be supplied. Uh, to them, to to them domestically, from Hong Kong. All right. Now, part two here: Taiwan and Taiwan Machinery Manufacturing Corporation. So the question here is: Hong Kong firms are writing to to, to Taiwan. Now, first, I want to look at uh, how that happened. How are the how the how are they reaching out to them? So they they were doing so in one of three ways: from this 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 cache of letters from these Hong Kong firms, they would write to. Sort of the, the equivalent of Hong Kong Trade Development Council, the, uh, the the China External Trade Development Council, which was Taiwan's Trade Development Council, is now known as TITRA, the Taiwan uh, Trade Development Council. They would write directly to them. They would say the requests: I need uh, I need a sugar mill. Can you send me up with a manufacturer to make a sugar mill for me? Uh, they might write directly to the the Ministry of Economic Affairs in Taiwan, making this request. But the majority of letters were going directly to Taiwan Machine Manufacturing Corporation, Taiji Gongsu, uh, in Taiwan, which is a state-run company. I'll talk more about them 
uh, next. And Morris, they would they would write directly uh, to any one of these, but mostly when they're writing to Taichiko, so they'd be very specific in saying what they what they need from uh, TMMC uh, and asking if TMMC could provide this for them. Now, why Taiwan and why, and especially why Taiji Gongsa? The short answer is because it had the capacity. The, they did a little bit of advertising in, 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 in Hong Kong. I won't get too, too much into that um, right now. We can talk about that in Q&A if, if you want. But I want to emphasize here is the capabilities of Taiji Gongsa. So uh, Taiji Gongsa was formed in 1948 when the communists, I'm sorry, when the, well, when the communists drove the KMT, um, to uh to Taiwan uh when the KMT took over and then eventually that they they were completely driven dri- driven out of China and in doing so they took over all the Japanese assets uh, on Taiwan there were five there were five companies there were five Japanese companies um on Taiwan engaged in machinery repair sugar manufacturing and then shipbuilding operations um there were two sugar companies and, and two shipbuilding uh, uh, operations. Um, and the KMT put all these into one company and called it Taiji, uh, Taiji Gongsu. It came directly under the Ministry of Economic Affairs, uh, Affairs, and it was to serve the developmental goals of the Taiwan state, uh, of the Taiwan state. And it would be tasked with often rather random things, uh, and have to figure out how to do so. So, for example, in 1950s, uh, Taiwan was importing a lot of bicycles as the, uh, uh, everyone had been driven out of mainland China was, was coming to Taiwan and they needed transportation. So they're, they're riding bikes and they needed their Taiwan was importing a lot of bicycles. And so Taiji Gongsa got the directive to begin manufacturing bicycles, uh, which it did for a number of years before then handing off to uh, Taiwan's uh, to, to, to smaller firms in, in Taiwan. And that was based, that was sort of it, uh, its modus Operands, so, you know how Taiji Gongsu was operating. They would develop a technology, develop a capacity, the tools, for example, to uh, to make a bicycle frame, uh, and then sell them at uh, very low prices to local Taiwan firms to get then local Taiwan firms to begin to take over uh, these uh, these uh, industries. Later on, uh, in the seventies, when Taiwan leaves the the UN and it begins losing diplomatic allies. That Taiji Gongsu then is tasked in uh, helping keep diplomatic allies by working with them on the ground to develop various various industries and providing tools, especially these African and South American countries, where it begins uh, helping them develop sugar mills is is, is a big thing. But uh, being in the late fifties and sixties, that Taiji Gongsu gets a bunch of U.S. aid to begin developing its own capacity to manufacture uh, machine tools uh, and diesel diesel engines. And so it develops an expertise in these large machine manufacturing tools to create rolling mills and to create uh, large diesel engines. So it develops this capacity and it begins to have a, a reputation for doing so throughout the region. Hong Kong firms come to know of, uh, uh, of Taiji Gongsu and they begin to to uh, write letters saying we need a rolling mill, we need a sugar mill. Uh, can can you supply this for us? And it seems that so there's some advertisement um, and there's some trade missions by Taiwan to Hong Kong in order in order to promote this. 
Uh, but by and large, it seems word of mouth because I can see these requests accelerating uh, through the set uh, through the 70s. That is to say, within the letters themselves from Hong Kong firms are saying, we heard about you from this other firm. Can you also provide such machines uh, for uh, uh, such machines for us? So my emphasis here at answering the question, why are Hong Kong firms turning to Taiwan? It's by dint of reputation as well as this capacity of this state-owned enterprise, uh, Taiwan Machine Manufacturing Corporation. I want to look closely uh, at, at Meyer Aluminum. So Meyer Aluminum was a Hong Kong, Hong Kong firm. Uh, which developed a very close relationship, very close working relationship with uh, Taiji Guanso. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just heard Dr. Makeup Kelly Her from Southern Methodist University telling us how Hong Kong began to diversify its work to four key industries. Next, he will look closely at Mayor Aluminum to examine the pivotal period for the city. Hong Kong is that the, uh, uh, the, the Hong Kong Productivity Council leads a mission of aluminum manufacturers that is making aluminum products, manufacturers of aluminum products, to Japan to visit Japanese uh, companies would see this vertical integration and they come back and some of them end up setting, setting up mills. Uh, and Meyer is, seems to be, seems to be one of them. In any case, in the late 1960s, then Meyer sees that it wants to get into metal fabrication and producing its own raw material of, uh, of the aluminum in order to, uh, which it then would use in order to produce the, fin the finished goods. So it's beginning to create vertical integration, uh, with this. In 1970, it buys its first machines from, uh, Taiwan from TNC, um, metal, uh, the, a rolling, the rolling mill machines in order to produce the, uh, the, uh, aluminum in this. Um, and it becomes very, very successful. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it goes on to establish a, a number, number of mills and Meyer, uh, is one of the, today is one of the leading aluminum manufacturers. Uh, of, of finished goods as well as in the uh, in, in the raw materials. So I want to talk about the sophistication of aluminum rolling and why Meyer had to turn to Taiwan in order to get this machinery. Uh, why this was such a big step in order to in increasing productivity and uh, and efficiency, and why it necessitated looking elsewhere uh, in order to acquire this technology and to to, to run this. I'm going to take you on a little tour of aluminum rolling and what this means. So, in short, um, so in brief, what happens is moving from the the raw aluminum ingot, which is this picture of it here. Um, I'll skip the whole foreground of what is aluminum isn't a raw material. It comes out on the ground. It comes out of box them, and then you have to induce it with electricity and strip it of. Uh, various ferrous metals in order to create the raw aluminum and, and, and the ingot. But usually what happens is the company will buy the raw, in, raw, raw ingot, um, mainly from Australia, uh, during this time and, 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 and today. Uh, and then from this ingot, it to create the, the billet. So melt down the ingot in the furnace and pour it in a mold to create the, the, the billet, these large aluminum slabs, uh, which are about I don't know, 
three, maybe three meters by three meters high, two or three meters high by 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 a meter wide, which then can be uh, easily uh, manipulated into the finished product, which is an aluminum aluminum foil, which uh, will be a, a anywhere from uh, I don't know, maybe you know, a, a tenth of an inch inch to to. Uh, to the third of the width of a, uh, of, a, of a human of a human hair, depending on what the finished product is is needed for. But so there's this process of turning the uh, the ingot into the slab, and then the, and then pressing the slab in order to thin it to become uh, the aluminum foil. On the surface, it's it's very simple. You just take the slab and you roll it through large rollers in order to flatten it. And you do that a number of times, and it flattens it out. Now the, the 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 concept again is is, is fairly simple uh, that you have you have rollers you heat up the slab pass the slab through the rollers and as it passes through the through the rollers that it deforms the 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 slab and presses it, presses it thinner. Humans began doing this uh, in like the in like the 16th century, uh, and uh, it was a fairly uh, Initially, it's a fairly simple process, as you see from uh, this still primitive uh, rolling mill here. So you have the large rollers, and two guys will just pass the sheet back and forth until it reaches the required thinness. Uh, and in the 20th century, especially in the 1960s, things begin to get automated, and it becomes more complex in order to both uh, press the press the the final product much thinner, as well as to increase the efficiency and productivity of us. Um, and this is a, a rough schemata of what an aluminum mill would look like in the 60s. And they haven't changed that much uh, since uh, since then. But at the time, this was a big innovation of moving from something like this in, the, in say, the 19th century uh, into further and further refinement. So by the 1960s and 70s, that they became fairly complex uh, operations. I've broken this down into three key steps. So the first is a slab preparation, which roughly corresponds to this, this, this first part here. The second is the strip rolling, which corresponds to this, this, this middle part. And the third is the finishing, both coiling as well as uh, sl slitting and, and smoothing. Now, I'm going to uh, lead you through each of these processes so you get a sense of what is going on. So first, the slab preparation. This begins with a preheating furnace of heating up the, the, the slab or, or, or the billet. Um, so this assumes that the ingot is already melted down into and put into the mold of this of this slab this will usually happen they'll do this all at once and then they'll put this they'll stack the slabs in some area uh waiting for for further processing but of course the slabs will cool down by them and then you need to heat it up in order to be able to press to pass it through the rollers and, and press it press it thin this is for hot rolling um cold rolling is a, a different a uh, slightly different operation. Uh, you won't have to you won't have to heat it up, uh, but of course. But uh, but so there's this preheating furnace, and the preheating furnaces need to be set to very specific temperatures uh, in order to ensure that the slab gets to the gets to the to the, uh, to the proper temperature uh, for uh, the 
in preparation for uh, for rolling. And so we see from Meyer uh, the development of a knowledge of what that temperature is, what it needs, how it's going to reach that temperature with this furnace, and how to develop this. And in close communication with uh, Taiji Gonsa, uh, who has developed this under both the technology to produce the furnace as well as the understanding about these things, of working with Taiji Gonsa in order to understand this and then to install and develop a particular furnace for its needs. I should emphasize here that what Taiji Gonsa is doing is all OEM, um, that it isn't, there is no uh, just like a standard furnace or a standard mill which you would order from a catalog, that uh, that everything is done to specification. And so that you see in these correspondences a discussion about what those specifications are and uh, how it will work in, in, in the factory. So in the slab, slab preparation, the first part is preheating furnace. The second is a scalping machine. After the slab is, is heated up in the furnace, it's sent to the scalping machine, which removes any impurities. So it's it's, it's essentially uh, large blades of which will go over the top and the sides of it in order to remove the impurities, which will be picked up, uh, such as carbonization in the pre preheating furnace. Now, the second stage of this is the uh, uh, is a strip drawing, and this is when it, this slab begins to be to be flattened. So first, I'll go through a roughing. Now, the roughing mill molds the slab to the proper width, and it gives it a first pass of, of flattening uh, in preparation for the proper rolling, which is the finishing mill. Um, now, the finishing mill uh, can be anywhere from uh, from one, one mill, say one of these of what you see in the picture. Uh, but most common by this time in the, in the 70s was to have seven seven of them. So each pass through, it will get thinner and thinner. So rather than having the two guys there, having to pass it back and forth uh, continuously through one mill, that the slab would go through seven different mills. And in each pass, it would get thinner and thinner, pressing it to the desired, uh, to, uh, to the desired whip. Um, and so the, in total, the thing might be called the finishing mill of which the slab would then pass through in uh, pass through in each of these. Uh, but for someone like Meyer, who would say they would need to purchase uh, seven seven uh, uh, entire mills here uh, for slab to, to pass through. Uh, it seems kind of like a black box. These things are actually quite, quite complicated. There are different kinds of arrangements of the rollers this would pass through. Most common uh, by this time was C, which is known as a four high mill uh, where there would be four rollers. So the, the, the slab passes through the very middle uh, of it there, but you have these backup rollers, which are stabilizing rollers, which reduce the bend of the work rollers here. Uh, so as, if you have a too high mill like this, which is uh, the most simplest mill, and again, like we see with the, with the primitive mill, two people pa just passing it through, there's a tendency of the work rolls then uh, to bend and contort, uh, which will decrease the uniformity of the slab as as it's going through. Uh, and so there, there are these various different kinds of variations depending on what you're doing. But the most common C, and this is what we see Meyer ordering from, uh, from TMMC, uh, the four high mill here. Uh, 
Which brings us then to the third process of the the rolling of the aluminum, which is the finishing it. So after it comes out of the out of the rolling mill, reaches the desired uh, width, or I'm sorry, the desired thickness, thinness, uh, it's passed to the leveling machine. As after it's coming off of the mill, uh, that the sheet itself gets slightly warped, as you can kind of see here uh, in this picture, as it's going through a leveling mill. Uh, and what the mill does is again a, a number of rollers, uh, usually around sixteen, uh, which. Are, are are not as as taunt as the rolling mill in order to gently level out the the, the sheet and uh, remove any deformities uh, uh, remove any deformities from it. After the finishing, <clears throat> it goes on to the the slitting machine. And the slitting machine will cut the aluminum to the desired uh, to the to, uh, to the desired width. Uh, if you're going to use the aluminum for, I don't know, make a spoon or something, you don't need this giant roll. You just need a small, uh, uh, a small square of it. And this is what the slitting machine will do is create this, the, the, the small, uh, the smaller width, um, uh, of this for use in the end product. So these are the three stages, but at each that there is another very complex, well, I want to emphasize for each of these three stages, these are very complex machines. Um, of technology that needed to be developed. Taiji Gonsa was able to do so with U.S. loans in the, uh, in the 19, 1960s. Uh, as, and so parts, parts from U.S. loans and part from Taiwan government loans uh, as, uh, as well. And then, of course, to disseminate this uh, to Hong Kong. Another very complex tool which was needed was, uh, is this, which is a coiler. You have the slab, which is pressed thinner and thinner. So you see it's from, uh, you know, a, a slab, which is a couple inches thick initially. Uh, and as it gets pressed thinner and thinner, that is moving from this three meter high slab to one of which can reach up to over 40 kilometers in, in length. Um, and of course, uh, there's nowhere to put that. So you got to coil it up. So you need, and so you need it somewhat of a complex machine in order to coil this because you need to keep the proper tension. And as the, uh, as the roll gets bigger and bigger, that you need to uh, in increase the, the, the speed of which it rolls in order to make, ensure that the, uh, the, the tension remains constant and that you have a uniform roll and that the, uh, this metal of which, you just, uh, of which you just rolled thin doesn't get deformed. And once you roll it up, the thing is very heavy, so you need a coil car in order to transport it around because you can't just pick these pick these things up. So again, another very sophisticated machine uh, uh, of, of which is necessary for for all this. Now the end product looks something like this: these giant rolls of aluminum, then of which uh, are used in order to uh, to make end end products, uh, such as the your your saucepans or your frying pans for Meyer. Now and the you know, Today, and Myers, Myers, the second largest uh, manufacturer of, of, of these aluminum cookware products products today, uh, which it produces out of its own aluminum well, rolling. Uh, so again, here's what I want to 
emphasizes this this the sophistication of this technology of this technology of which is developed then by Taiji Gongsi uh transferred to my Meyer aluminum as well as an instruction on how to use this that was Dr McCabe Kelleher from Southern Methodist University I'm Carol Meng and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on mind matters Thank you.